This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Retainers. Do you wish your teeth felt like they were laminated? Try Retainers today. Welcome to episode 120 of The Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. Today, we'll be talking about art, the only time where it's a good thing to be framed. This is what happens when they let me write the jokes. Since this is our season 6 finale deep dive, which really just means I'll put a 7 instead of a 6 next to episodes and pretend we accomplished something, I did want to conclude with a more reflective episode, and what better topic than the most viral climate story of 2022. Visitors at the National Gallery in London stood stunned as two young activists glued themselves beneath an exhibit of Vincent van Gogh's sunflowers. What is worth more, art or life? Is it worth more than food? Worth more than justice? Well, the original Sunflowers was auctioned off at $40 million, and I can get a five-layer beef burrito at Taco Bell for $1.89, so I think the art might be more valuable. Maybe eggs will give it a run for its money soon. But this was one of a long list of similar protests last year, from an activist smearing cake on the Mona Lisa in May, to five activists spray-painting no new oil underneath a copy of The Last Supper in July, to two activists throwing mashed potatoes on Monet's grain stacks painting in October, to several more. And surprisingly, these activists weren't protesting Monet's creepy Japan fetish, they were protesting fossil fuels. That news story was from our friends at PBS NewsHour, which means not only were these protests making the news, but they were making the news in an entirely different continent. So while the protesters may not have had the positive climate impact they intended, as we will discuss later, they certainly were successful in generating buzz and intrigue. But here's the part that didn't get discussed. Listen to the names of some of these paintings. Sunflowers. Grain stacks. Crap that is outside. Okay, fine, the last one was a watercolor I made in kindergarten that I spilled a milkshake on, but the other two are about the environment. In fact, they tell a climate story, as does a whole lot of art throughout history and to this day. So we won't be covering as concrete a problem as we might normally on The Sweaty Penguin today, but we will contemplate some more abstract questions that I feel are important as this climate-art connection has come into the news. We'll discuss what it means to be environmental art, how history and climate change may shape that definition, and what lessons we can learn as we interact with art moving forward. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. If you want to take two minutes to help out The Sweaty Penguin, you can either leave us a five-star rating and review, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. Doing either earns you a special shout-out at the end of the show, joining the Patreon, Patreon gets you merch, bonus content, and a whole lot more.
This episode is also the final part of our four-part series collaborating with the Gulf Climate Listening Project covering environmental issues on the Gulf Coast. If you're interested in learning about stopping LNG exports and creating a better future on the Gulf Coast, visit gulfcoastmurals.com. But first, it's time for Art 101. Art is defined as... Wait, can we cut? Stop the music. Sorry, I love starting with a definition and teaching my little classes here, but... I actually can't give you a definition on this one. One, if there were a definition of art, I would be the least qualified person to give it to you. I'm partially colorblind, I sulk every time someone takes me to an art museum, and every drawing I made as a kid is so bad, it would probably look better with soup thrown at it. At least it would cover up that all my people didn't have necks and their hands were proportionally the size of a foam finger. But two, and more importantly, there is no good definition of art. I can define it as not anything I drew as a kid, but beyond that, it's pretty subjective. And I think environmental art is facing a similar question. Often terms like environmental art or eco-art are used to reference very specific types of art that comment on environmental issues or use specific sustainable practices. Certainly, anyone who labels themselves as an environmental artist or eco-artist could speak to that better than me. But environmental art feels bigger than that to me, at least in my limited experience. Our expert this week is Haroldina Wise. Haroldina is an artist based in Houston, Texas, who was just recently the artist-in-residence at the University of Houston's Cullen School of Engineering. According to Haroldina, a big part of art's appeal is that artists can act as recorders of their time. I think that part of what uh, how an artist works and develops a lifetime body of work is around the things that inspire us. It's about what we see as recorders of our time. Remember that we now look at art history as more holistically as those artists representing their time. And so we so engagingly go into the Renaissance, for example, and, and look with, with glee at, at, at that time. Well, somebody's gonna be looking at us through the art lens about these times. That takes me as an artist into looking at what are the real issues of our time and then doing the art around that. So to me, it's truly behind everything I do. It's true. Somebody is going to look at us through the art lens. And they'll be pretty disappointed when they find out half the art from the 2020s is people designing random household objects out of cake to trick their boyfriends for a Facebook reel. Not even an Instagram reel, a Facebook reel. And it's definitely not scripted either. But if we look back through history, looking to artists as recorders of their time, it's fascinating to see just how much of an influence the environment, and specifically climate, has had. Let's go back to some of the very first art, cave art. Not to be confused with man cave art, which mostly consists of empty beer cans and New York Jets logos. 
When we think of cave art, one of the first things we think of is animals. But researchers are learning that it's a bit more thought out than my attempts to draw a cheetah in second grade. A study from this past January in the Cambridge Archaeological Journal suggested that abstract markings and geometric signs found alongside animal paintings in European caves were actually recording the timing of the reproductive cycles of the depicted animals. The study notes it was around 37,000 years ago when cave art began transitioning from handprints, dots, and rectangles to actual paintings of animals, and it was around 21,500 years ago where we start seeing these reproductive charts. Apparently, they didn't have the Flow app back then. In fact, ancient humans were actually tracking the thawing of rivers and the moon to develop a lunar calendar in order to pull this off. But if that wasn't cool enough, here's where this gets wild. If we look at the global climate during this time, which paleoclimatologists can do with ice cores, deep sea sediment cores, stalagmites, stalactites, time machines, all these different things that give us a look into the past, we see that the last ice age, some of the coldest global temperatures over the last million years, happened 20,000 years ago. So over those tens of thousands of years, from when cave art was handprints and shapes, to when it was animals, to when it was tracking animals getting it on, the global climate was cooling. And what does that mean? That means there would be less available food, which means humans literally living in an ice age would have to be a lot more informed and strategic about where their next meal might come from. I mean, if Scrat would go to that much trouble to get an acorn, you can only imagine what humans had to do. Now, of course, some of this could have been human development. Maybe we would have figured this stuff out either way. But one could argue humans wouldn't have needed to do that yet if food were abundant. They could have focused on more important things, like roasting Neanderthals. <laughs> Yeah, let's hear it for the Neanderthals! You Neanderthals are something, man. Your brow ridges are so prominent, I bet you could use them as a sundial. <laughs> don't get me started on your skills with tools. The only sharp thing about you guys is your pointy elbows. I'm not saying you're slow, but the glacier's called. They want their pace back. It's okay, though. We love you, Neanderthals. After all, it takes a special kind of genius to invent the wheel, and then forget how to use it. <laughs> yeah, they definitely would have been doing that if it weren't for the Ice Age. But if you still don't believe me, let's fast forward to the Maya civilization. Haroldina talked about how her Maya heritage actually influences her work. An artist is a way to describe the world. One of the most important things I can tell you is that when researching my past, my ancestry, what makes me, what's in my DNA, I came to the enormous intellectual patrimony that my Maya people have left. It is unbelievably robust. 
And I thought, so that's why I am so curious because they were curious about the cosmos, about the planet, about the cycles of the planet. The most important thing I can say about this in this investigation, this, this research into my Maya patrimony is that when I knew this was gonna be the source for my art is when I understood that everything they did, everything they researched, everything they observed was about the survival of the species. And how it happened was to understand the planet and the cosmos. Isn't that beautiful? And I found that really interesting. That actually led me down a rabbit hole of research where I was looking at a variety of paintings and sculptures depicting two of their most important gods, Chak, who is their god of rain, and Hunhunapu, their god of maize. In fact, while I'm no linguistics expert, I did see a few sources claim that in over 20 Maya languages, the only word that is the same in all of them is the word for maize. Which, if true, is kind of hilarious that all the Mayas use one word for maize, but in English, we still can't figure out whether to call it maize or corn. Like, can we pull it together, America? But corn was really important to Maya culture, and not just because it's a big lump with knobs and it has the juice. The Maya creation story says that people were created from maize. So the god of maize was actually one of the most important deities in their culture. Maize also played an extremely significant role in their diet, and archaeologists have even found evidence suggesting wealthy urbanites were eating more maize than their rural neighbors, which would further attest to the crop's popularity. But when I looked at these depictions of the Maya gods of rain and maize, I noticed that many of them were from about 1,200 years ago. And if you've heard any of our episodes talking about drought, that number might sound familiar. The American Southwest is currently experiencing what experts are calling the worst drought in 1,200 years. Now, the Maya were quite a bit further south, down in the Guatemala, Belize, Mexico, Honduras area, but they were hit hard by that drought too. In fact, some even speculate that drought caused the collapse of their civilization, which I think is a bit extreme to say because there are about 6 million Mayas that are still living there. But it would be reasonable to say that drought caused a lot of conflict and hardship during that time. And that's why I found it interesting to see the prominence of these two gods in Maya art. Again, they did other stuff too, but the fact that many artists were compelled to depict these two gods at that time is certainly meaningful. And while we can never know what goes on in the minds of historic artists, we do see similar patterns extending all the way to present day. In Europe, paleoclimatologists have found that there was a warmer period during medieval times, followed by a cooling at almost the exact same time that the Renaissance started. That cooling is sometimes termed the Little Ice Age, although I propose we be a little more sensitive and call it the Short King Ice Age. But this cool period extended until 1850, at which point human greenhouse gas emissions have shot the climate up at speeds faster than a teenager whose parents just texted that they're on the way home. And if we look at how art evolved during that time, we start with medieval art, 
which is very flat, very religious, very little nature. I personally would have been very scared to do religious paintings during that time. One wrong stroke and you have Mary pissed off that her forehead is too big. But I applaud those artists' confidence. Ironically, though, it was nature that these artists saw as divine. It was God's creation. It was fixed. It was stagnant. And paintings weren't really going to be able to capture that. But we go to the Renaissance. And we see a shift toward nature. We start to see some of those religious artworks taking place in nature. Think Sistine Chapel, outside. Mona Lisa, outside. The David. Well, I guess if he's outside, he's getting arrested for indecent exposure, so we'll say he's getting into the shower. But as that transition goes, we see more color, more depth. The first paintings of snowy landscapes in Europe occur during the Renaissance. This song comes out, which was apparently what spring sounded like in the 1720s. Music and climate is probably a whole additional episode. And by the end of the short king with a great personality ice age, by the time we reach the aforementioned sunflowers and grain stacks paintings in the late 1800s, we're fully immersed in pieces of dynamic, colorful nature. In fact, grain stacks, if you're unfamiliar, is a series of paintings that show these same bales of hay against different backdrops representing the changing seasons. One could argue the seasons themselves are the subject of the painting, rather than the hay that is consistent in each one. And I wish I were more of an expert on this and could tell you more about these different periods of art, but I do know these paintings are not needles in a haystack. These are the first works of art that come up when I research these time periods. The role climate played in these trends can be debated, but they are trends. And honestly, it's one of the most fascinating things to me about just the environment in general. It's that, seahorses being good dads, and sloths working at the DMV. Artists are, as Haroldina said, recorders of their time. So I think it's very fair to look at these works of art through that lens. That takes us to the last 50 to 100 years or so when environmental art started to incorporate commentary. The environmental art movement, as I've seen it called, is said to have originated in the 1960s, I assume in preparation for Woodstock, and it seems like every artist has a different definition of what that means. I mean, the only word with more definitions than environmental art is situationship. Some artists, for example, look at the environmental impact of the materials used to create their art. I'm a very material person. I come from, uh, from the people's who textiles were a big deal, but I'll tell you a big deal too. It's very environmentally friendly. Things like sisal, which is enequen in Spanish, is a plant that is uh, cousin to the agave. It grows on any lava rock, on any lava field with no irrigation, and the Maya knew that. And so very sustainable form. And then so fibrous that when taken the big leaves out of the Enneken plant and just put into to the sun, 
they can then get the, the everything they need because all the fibers have been have been uh, sustainably and and very economically uh, done. So what a beautiful material to then go to, and I use that because it has such a history of sustainability. I'm not going to sit here and act as if art is a major environmental problem in the grand scheme of things, but I do find it really encouraging to see environmental artists like Haroldina putting this thought into how they can do their part. One small issue where artists do have some control is the paint they use. Paint is made up of three main parts, the color, the liquid that holds the color, and the substance that makes it stick together. In oil paint, this substance is a type of refined vegetable oil, while in acrylic paint, it's a type of plastic. And that means when we rinse off our acrylic paint brushes in the sink, you can release tiny bits of plastic that later end up in the environment and can harm plants, animals, and humans. Acrylic paint is obviously pretty low down on the list of plastic issues. Number one is figuring out why Kim Kardashian removed a family conversation about plastic surgery from the Keeping Up with the Kardashians reunion. But certainly, when there are alternatives to this type of paint, it's exciting to see artists explore that. Additionally, it actually takes 13 gallons of water to produce one gallon of paint, which again is not earth-shattering, but is certainly more than I expected. I was thinking like 12 and a half tops. Another issue that artists have identified is carbon emissions. Materials like steel, concrete, and plastic that might be used in sculpture can require energy-intensive processes to manufacture. Setting up displays at museums may require special lights or temperature and humidity controls in the building which suck energy. And perhaps most prominently, art artists and art enthusiasts rack up quite a few air miles, and air travel is, of course, an extremely carbon-intensive form of transportation, unless you're a bird. Seriously, why don't we just have carrier pigeons bring artwork from one museum to another? I'd trust them more with my valuables than I'd trust American Airlines. In fact, one artist, Michael Wang, put together an exhibit in 2012 titled Carbon Copies, where, as part of the design, he researched the carbon emissions of a variety of famous artworks. Each artwork had its own story. Marina Abramovic's performance at the Museum of Modern Art in 2010 emitted 4.16 tons of carbon due to special lighting. Julie Mayritu's 2009 mural in the Golden Sachs building emitted 5.04 tons of carbon, with her four Berlin studio assistants having to travel all the way to New York to install it. And Richard Serra's Torqued Ellipse sculpture emitted 109.4 tons of carbon, seeing as it was made out of steel. These numbers are far below the billions of tons of carbon emissions we discuss in Carbon Bomb episodes, but they're not insignificant either. A ton of carbon emissions is equivalent to driving an average car 2,500 miles or from Los Angeles to New York City, which sounds really tempting right now. I just want a good bagel, is that too much to ask? And as I understand it, these emissions sources may not even be the biggest ones. Beyond the creation of the art itself, there's the transportation of art as it is loaned to different galleries around the world, the transportation of the artists, and the transportation of art enthusiasts as they visit museums around the world. 
At the Louvre, for example, 70% of visitors in 2022 were international tourists. That's an underestimate too, because I went to the Louvre in 2022, but didn't actually go inside, so there's no way they could have me on file. Sure, seeing the Mona Lisa would have been cool, but I got to go to the spot in the Louvre Garden where one 40-second scene in The Good Place was shot, so I think I did the more important thing. And perhaps a newer source of potential carbon emissions from the art world is NFTs. Haroldina has actually started working with artificial intelligence through her role at the University of Houston. I'll let her tell you about that project. So this is an ongoing project that I have with the University of Houston uh, with, with a particular uh, engineer there. Uh, his name is Dr. Pepe Contreras Vidal. And uh, what we're doing is creating the Nawal project, the Nawal being in the Maya cosmology, a mirror spirit that is given at birth. Well, the reason why this is called the Nawal is number one, both Pepe and I are of Maya background. Uh, number two, the, the beauty about what is this mirror spirit is that it is being understood by an AI model. So be, basically understanding my art, learning from my art, at, at the AI model being trained in my art that then gets triggered by my brainwaves in real time as I create new art. So the, the kicky thing about this project is that I'm in a closed circle of my brain. So the brain is two, one to two seconds ahead of my thoughts. By the time the thought has emerged, the brain has already decided between a million other thoughts that that's the thought that's going to emerge. So it's, but, but what is triggering the AI model is then way before I know what has been happening. So the AI model is ahead and it's projecting then this mirror spirit, the AI that is learning of my art. So then when I go to then, let's say, choose white paint to go forward to paint in real time, the AI model is projected in front of me. So where does that white go? And it, so that's informing me. It, it, am I forming with the AI? Am I going against the AI? Am, am I forming a place to then project the AI? At the end of these 15 to 17 minutes of live painting, what happens is that the AI model, the projection then goes onto the painting. So the painting changes for 17 minutes. And it is so beautiful, unbelievably important. So in other words, AI can figure out what I'm thinking before I even think it? That's pretty bold, considering that I recently asked ChatGPT if it smelled updog in here, and it replied, what's updog? Yeah, humans won, AI zero. If that was the thing that gets AI mad enough to create Skynet, I apologize to all of you in advance. But as Haroldina explains, this project led her to grapple with the potential impacts of NFTs. NFTs are like special collector's items in the digital world, with each one being unique and ownership being tracked and recorded on a big online system called a blockchain. They can be things like digital artwork or music, and you can buy, sell, or trade them just like physical collector's items. 
Typically, NFTs are purchased with a cryptocurrency called Ethereum. And at the time I spoke with Heraldina, Ethereum was consuming a lot of energy. Now, what, what I want to tell you is that this is, this is any artist NFT Disney World. Imagine 17 minutes of a painting changing. So millions of NFTs coming out of one Nawal project. The only reason why he and I have not gone down the path of, the, of, of then flourishing the Nawal project into the NFT world is that we're still looking at the NFT world and the energy that it consumes. We're getting better. It's getting a little bit better. There are new venues because, because it, there's beginning to be awareness of the fact that we can't continue to do that the way that we had. Uh, unfortunately, El Salvador is part of the environment that is flourishing with, uh, with, with the whole cryptocurrency. Taking away precious energy from the people. So making energy less accessible to people. That is very painful to me. So you see, that's the reason why I haven't gone there yet. Because energy consumption is a big deal in how I look at the world. And we talked about this issue in our cryptocurrency episode last summer. Since then, Ethereum has changed their operations to make it far less energy intensive, and I'll let you listen to that episode to learn how that worked. So we'll see if the issues with NFT energy consumption go away as a result, or if other challenges come up along the way. So that's one set of questions some environmental artists think about. But the other is about the art itself. What does it capture? Where is it located? Does it offer commentary? Does it incorporate justice? There's a lot to think about for someone who creates environmental art as a recorder of their time, this time being the present. I mean, there's more to think about here than there is in the finale of Succession. Actually, I have no idea if that's true or not. I haven't actually seen the finale, and I'm avoiding spoilers like the plague, but our comedy writers keep insisting on succession jokes, so that's the best I've got. But as recorders of their time, it's actually quite natural for artists to grapple with these difficult questions as they choose what to create. Listen to how Haroldina discusses her home of Houston, Texas. She observes the landscape, but she observes a lot more than that. Houston, as I described it, uh, as nature and, and, and freeways of concrete, oceans of concrete is what I call it. Yet Houston sits in one of the most vibrant ecological settings, the Gulf Coast. And the Gulf Coast is being seen as probably environmentally iffy because we get the hurricanes and destruction. Uh, and, and flooding, this is what, what people know if they even care about the Gulf Coast. We also have quite a bit of poverty around the Gulf Coast that has been historically uh, communities that, that don't have a lot. And then we have flourished communities that are extremely rich because we are in, in some of the Gulf Coast is in beautiful waters. So this is a very important uh, ecosystem that we are beginning to come together uh, in environmental movements like you know, the Gulf Coast Listening Project, like the Love of the of Gulf Coast. And I think it's important to note that 
that just at a, lo a more localized level, we can perhaps begin to wrap our brain and our hearts around regions that are incredibly important for the sustainability of, of these, um, these environments. And that's not to say artists throughout history weren't offering commentary. Of course they were. But these issues of hurricanes and urbanization and justice are far more emblematic of what you might find when you encounter the phrase environmental art today. You might see more natural outdoor installations. For example, Robert Morris created a land art piece called The Observatory in the Netherlands, referencing Stonehenge, and Agnes Deans famously grew a field of wheat on a landfill near Wall Street in Manhattan for her piece Wheatfield, A Confrontation. But on the flip side, there's artists such as Chris Jordan who have focused on the environmental impact of consumerism, creating digital photographs that depict waste. The Red Earth Environmental Art Group takes a collective and participatory approach, collaborating with scientists and other professionals to create interactive installations and performances. Edith Moussnier creates outdoor textile installations that question concepts of public space, sustainability, and vulnerability. Niels Udo creates utopias in nature, helping us envision what's possible. There's so many different examples, so many directions artists take this that barely scratch the surface. I mean, there are more techniques for environmental art than there are emojis on a teenager's smartphone. And just like those emojis, a good chunk of these environmental art installations leave you wondering, what the heck is that supposed to be? But in all seriousness, despite distinct styles and techniques, there is certainly a common thread of depicting and commenting on the human relationship with the natural world. That said, I don't know that there's a right answer for what environmental art is. To me, an art novice whose best piece of art was painting a stepstool black and attempting to paint a planet on it, doing this research, I felt like everything from animals in a cave to sculptures of the maze god to paintings of hay through the seasons to a field of wheat atop a New York landfill seemed like environmental art. Even a leaf on a latte feels like environmental art to me, unless it was made out of soy milk, in which case, gross. But even though all these works tell a story about human nature connections through time, I don't know that the general public is thinking about these works in that way. I certainly didn't before my conversation with Haroldina. And that brings me back full circle to the protests from last year. The target wasn't any art, it was high art. And no, I don't mean Mona Lisa was on shrooms, I mean art in fancy museums that is mainly consumed by people who can afford a monocle. Targeting that art grabbed attention, but I'm not sure that it was positive. Following last year's climate protests targeting famous paintings, an SSRS poll found 46% of respondents said disruptive non-violent climate protests actually decreased their support for climate action. Meanwhile, 40% responded that they weren't affected at all, and the remaining 13% reported an increase in support. So activists may have generated buzz, but they didn't generate engagement. Last year, I did an episode on how these protests might not have been constructive for the climate movement, but I hadn't yet thought about the art. The art itself was well protected. Protesters had no intention of actually destroying the pieces. In fact, they loved the pieces so much they glued themselves to them. 
But why wasn't I stopping to think about the environmental stories in the art? Why was art about very human experiences primarily being appreciated by high society? And if we want to zoom out here and really probe this issue beyond the scope of a climate podcast, why is it that among 18 major U.S. museums, 85% of artists featured are white and 87% are men, according to a 2019 Public Library of Science study? That's a whole other can of worms, but I think a big takeaway from these protests was that the messages of environmental art, the record of all these environmental experiences throughout history, were not reaching people. Usually I just blame the Facebook algorithm for something like that, but this might be something bigger. And due to climate change, there's actually some increased urgency to appreciate environmental art. Scientists are finding that salt crystals are building up on the cave walls, featuring some of the ancient art we previously discussed, and these crystals are causing the rocks to slowly disintegrate. And unfortunately, climate change is exacerbating that process. As temperatures rise and fall, the salt deposits expand and contract, leading to the gradual degradation of the artwork. Climate change may intensify the conditions that facilitate salt crystal formation, particularly with the potential for more severe El Nino events in the near future. Unrelated, I just dumped a bunch of salt on all my childhood artwork and put it next to the radiator, so let's hope it works its magic. And yes, this is the sixth time I've roasted my terrible art skills today, so 4,853 roasts away from the amount of times my mom has roasted my art skills in the last month. Can environmental art become more sustainable and connect with more people? If it's not covered in soup and salt crystals, absolutely. If it is covered in soup and salt, though, it will attract hungry people, so maybe that is a solution. But in our next segment... We'll explore how artists can adopt more environmentally friendly practices, reach new audiences, and avoid getting biblical kings arrested for indecent exposure. Do you have a hot dentist that you need more excuses to see? If so, retainers are for you. With retainers, you'll have the chance to study the strange, timeless void that is a dentistry waiting room. Stare at the aquarium. Skim the People magazine from 2013. Have an unwanted staring contest with a nine-year-old that's gripping a Cheez-It-stained iPad. And if you're not on board yet, just wait till you see how expensive they are. Wow. Blow a whole month's rent on a sopping wet piece of plastic that you have to take out in front of everyone. Retainers, dust yours off and pop it in today. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. So, that was a lot. That was almost as big an information dump as if you asked a four-year-old about Thomas the Tank Engine. Yes, I get it, Tyler. The green one's name is Percy. No, I didn't know that before, but I didn't need to know it now. But hopefully, this environmental art conversation hits a little closer to home than that. I, for one, have found the topic really enlightening. And it's funny, because 
I thought in researching this episode, I'd pop out the other side with an argument about what environmental art is and ought to be. We usually do come out of these more abstract episodes with some semblance of certainty like that. But with this, I have more questions than when I started. It's like watching 2001 A Space Odyssey, except you don't want to jump out your window the whole time. And it's funny, because I then look back at my conversation with Haroldina, and I see I asked her two questions that involve trying to find meaning in the phrase environmental art, and Haroldina discussed projects she did that involved sustainability or commentary or what have you, but she never assigned that requirement to other environmental artists. The idea that really came up over and over, the idea that inspired so much of my research here, was the idea that artists are recorders of their time. I have no doubt that as recorders of time that we are, I will even take it back to my research on the Maya uh, um, concept of artist. Uh, they called us Itza, and it doesn't mean artist alone. There is no such thing as a word for artist. The word Itza refers to artist sage. It never went separate, artist sage we bring new colors to what we see. And so, and even then they, they took artists as people that were very important to inform the kings around how they were gonna survive in the next generations. I find that to be true. I find that to be vitally important to look at what artists are, are seeing are feeling uh, almost ahead of society. It's not that we are different. It's that we are perhaps more sensitive to these changes. And to me, that's the beauty of the historical piece. We go from Cro-Magnons from tens of thousands of years ago, to Mayas who don't even use the word artist, to the famous Van Goghs and Monets, to the very deliberately environmental artists today. But all of them recorded their time. All of them commented on their time, simply by what they chose to focus on, let alone how or why. During times of environmental change or struggle, art was about how we survive it. Artists spotted things others didn't, and not just that the pile of laundry you've been ignoring is an avant-garde installation on the futility of cleanliness. So to me, it's silly to constrain the definition of environmental art to some sustainability standard or poignance of opinion. I want to not just put all of this art into the environmental art umbrella, but I want to appreciate how environmental change led to artistic change. I'd rather not resolve the question of what is environmental art, because I think all of it contains lessons to learn from. That said, there are some questions we can start to resolve, and let's start with sustainability. Regarding the paint issue, one option is being a bit more mindful during disposal. For oil-based paints, you don't want to throw them away, but you can take them to places that deal with hazardous waste or bring them to local drop-off events. That may be a little bit of a hassle, but personally, I think a local drop-off event coupled with free boba, free henna tattoos, and a mismatched socks-only requirement would attract all the artists in a neighborhood. If you're using latex paints, you can dispose of it yourself, but it is helpful to dry them out first. 
Apparently, one way to speed out the drying process is to mix in cat litter, which explains why Andy Warhol has 25 cats in his New York City apartment. Andy was just really passionate about the environment. Another option is donating unused paint. Groups like Habitat for Humanity can use it, and even local drama clubs can use it to finally provide a convincing disguise for their 40-year-old Tracy Turnblad. Artists can also look at the materials themselves. Some manufacturers, like Natural Earth Paint, are producing paints free of petroleum-based pigments or synthetic preservatives housed in recycled or biodegradable packaging. Others, like M. Graham, have ditched solvents entirely, switched to clean energy, and are reusing factory water waste. Even in the realm of watercolors, which are typically more environmentally friendly due to their water-based nature, there's a movement toward non-toxic versions. Brands like Earth Easy and Lutea, for example, are using plant dyes and other eco-friendly materials in their formulations. These ideas aren't without their complications, and certainly artists have to choose if these materials capture the, insert fancy art words here, but clearly there's interest in making some of these changes. In fact, according to Haroldina, environmentally-minded materials can actually enhance your art. Here she is talking about her experience during the cold wave that hit Texas in 2021. Matter of fact, one of the other things that I did around this uh, this freeze of 2021 is that I went. We went through a lot of wood to keep warm. We stayed by the fireplace 24/7. We burned through a lot of wood. At the end of that wood, at the end of that big freeze, I looked at that piles and piles of ashes, and I now have them in my studio, and my grays are. From those ashes. So now they're going into every part of my, my art as my gray. Now this is my signature gray. Imagine you that going through so much wood is, is already a, a big deal. I needed to, to honor that fact that that wood came into my house to keep me warm and now I reuse it. A very hard, very difficult material to use because it's the ultimate dehydrated material. So it wants to suck up everything I give it in terms of, of uh, moisture. So difficult, but a very beautiful, strange gray that is now in all of my art. I know dehydrated materials can be frustrating. I've had girlfriends. But in all seriousness, that's really cool. To be environmental art by not just using a sustainable material, but having a story behind that material certainly sends a powerful message to any viewer of the piece. And the conversation about sustainable materials can go on and on. Rather than creating paintbrushes out of plastic, we can use bamboo, corn, hala, animal hair. Maybe we can even rip the hair off the back of people with mullets and use that. Seriously, no one wants to look at that. Help the environment. Put it to good use. As for sculpture... Artists can find ways to use reclaimed materials such as broken pipes, discarded construction materials, or old furniture or equipment, recycled materials coming from things like rubber tires, broken pottery, or bottles or cans, or even natural materials like fallen wood, hay, or sand. I definitely don't want to sound like every sculpture needs to look like something your artsy friend made out of twigs while sitting on the bench at soccer practice, but again, to Haroldina's point, Materials are a part of an artist's story. 
They know that already. I'm just learning it. But these are still interesting solutions, so I hope I can offer something of value to any of us less artsy folks. How about carbon emissions? It certainly isn't a major source of emissions in the grand scheme of things, but there's also lots of room for improvement. As for art itself, I again think there's value in choosing lower emissions materials if possible. Museums can look for more efficient lighting systems, getting electricity from clean energy, or obtaining LED certifications, which can not only save carbon emissions, but also save money in the long term. On the transportation side, one interesting idea I heard was having museums within a community coordinate with each other when they do their loans so that pieces of art could sort of carpool with each other, or whatever the airplane equivalent is. Airpool? Plane pool? I know, that would be a lot of coordination, and I'm not sure if nearby museums are friends or bitter rivals. Without knowing any better, I'm imagining the Met and the MoMA having Jojo Siwa versus Candace Cameron Burr level standoffs, but... On the off chance that they do get along, I do think it was a clever idea. There's also the issue of transportation from tourists, and in all honesty, I'm not one to argue that people shouldn't travel. We have an episode on airplanes, which talks about some development in airplane sustainability. Since that episode, we've even seen a first green hydrogen-powered airliner fly for 15 minutes, so there's been developments. But that's a bit outside the scope of this episode. That said, something that I think could address the transportation issue a small amount while addressing a lot of other issues is making art more accessible. Just to give one example of this, I think about during COVID-19, when a lot of people were taking virtual tours of art museums around the world. If those are really effective, maybe some art enthusiasts will still want to travel, but will do it slightly less often. They'll still do it, as they should. There's no comparison to seeing art in person, and I think it's mildly creepy to check out the David virtually. I'm 99% sure he did not consent to any of this. But it could provide another option. And that's the cool part, because it provides an environmentally friendly option, but way more so, it provides an economically friendly option. We talked about how the pieces that were targeted by climate protesters were high art. That was something I spoke about with Haroldina. I asked her to share her thoughts on those protests, since they were still going on at the time of the interview. And I'm going to play the full response. I thought this perspective was really interesting, and certainly nothing I could have anticipated. I think that so much energy goes into trying to express our frustration. So I understand uh, looking at art, especially in, in, in what we call the high art that is in museums that are almost churches of art. I don't believe museums are going to be irrelevant ever, but I do believe, going back to my thought about making art democratized, relatable, that as we go forth, we can't just be for the 10% of people who have taken art history and understand the meaning or the value of art. We need to make it relatable to everyone. And so the frustration part of this, I totally relate to. Uh, doing it on a Van Gogh, I think I know why. I think it's because that's the high art and it's sitting in a museum. So, uh, so museum slash church that then 
you know, you're going to go into those, those precious places. The truth is that it, I would love for somebody to look at my art that is, you know, sitting literally hanging from a tree in a park, uh, like I tend to think about things, and then say, well, I'm going to touch that painting because it's hanging. And I would love to see somebody do that. And then say, well, maybe I should throw a tomato can to, to that painting. And then somebody say, but wait a minute, what could they have been saying by hanging it from a tree? Just that moment, if they then desecrate it, let that be the frustration. But just the moment of thinking, but what could this be about? That's an important moment for me as an artist. That's the moment where you begin to, to come into the painting and think, what could the artist have been saying about this? And what do I have to say about that? I, the viewer. So very important question that you're asking me. Very important, very important for the future because the future is not gonna hold churches of art. The future has to be about everybody needing art in their lives. What are we doing about that? And therefore my hope that if we go into the de democratization of art in any small way, not gonna happen fast, but in any small way, maybe this platform of art for the environment is gonna take a, a much higher um, uh, degree of importance around the planet. I guess I relate. I would have loved if somebody would have thrown soup at the weaving project I was assigned in sixth grade art class so my mom wouldn't have had to contact my teacher and say that assignment was way too complicated of a project for a terrible artist like myself. I hope I paraphrase that right, mom. But for a professional like Haroldina to genuinely feel that was not something I expected. I do remember some commentators after the protests suggesting that the artists themselves would have been proud of the activists, or done the same thing, and I'm sure they would have listened. Certainly Van Gogh would have lent them an ear. Honestly, you should be proud of me that I made it this far without making that joke. But, yeah, we can't know how they would have felt. What we do know, and what I want to circle back to from what Haroldina said, is that art could be more democratized, more relatable. Seeing her do work in her community of Houston, often creating outdoor projects or interactive projects or projects about a shared experience, is certainly a step in that direction. But that's a much broader conversation, certainly beyond my expertise. However, I do hope in creating this episode, we at least accomplished a piece of what she said there, which is thinking about the message of the art before throwing food at it or gluing ourselves to it. And that kind of leads into our last solution topic, and that is incorporating environmental art into education. A 2020 Ecosystems and People study in Finland had six fifth grade students work with artists, a local farmer, their teachers, and the researchers on a series of artistic exercises and environmental workshops at schools, meadows, and dairy farms. I didn't see if these students were given ice cream at the dairy farm, but if not, this whole thing was a clear waste of time. I mean, that's just cruel. In all seriousness, according to observations, field notes, and reflections from the students, these arts-based practices amplified emotional and philosophical connections with nature, suggesting environmental art education could tangibly improve young people's environmental attitudes. That's right, no more fourth graders setting up offshore oil rigs. Climate change solved. 
And there's a long list of ways to incorporate environmental art into the classroom, from field trips like the ones in that study, to creating nature collages from things like leaves and flowers, to creating sculptures crafted from recycled materials, to breaking out the sustainable paints I mentioned earlier. Ultimately, it's likely that the effectiveness of these strategies would vary based on individual learning styles and accessibility to resources, but again, there's so many different ways to do it. Just listen to this clip from Haroldina. Art is the platform that can create empathy. And we need empathy for the planet. Because my premise as an artist is that we are the planet. It's not just the premise that I made up. It is years and years of research and this deep understanding that the Maya and all the other people that are still here today, I am part of that have survived because we read the planet correctly, because we were in sync with the planet, because we're looking at signs that are now inside of us, inside of our DNA. And so I believe that art can be the right platform to bring empathy to the planet and bring a new understanding of how to look at it. Art can create empathy. Whether that's in the classroom, at a museum, or in your kitchen sink where your carefully crafted sculpture of stacked, soaking dishes is art, there's an opportunity to express new ideas and bring people together. So while we may not have come out of this episode with a definitive answer to the question of what is environmental art, I do think there is a lot to be learned. As recorders of their time, artists have provided a lot of insight into how environmental change affected life. And while today's environmental artists may have some more complex questions to think about in an era of human-caused climate change, they are still continuing what I feel to be a very similar pattern. By putting thought into materials, making art more accessible, and even bringing that art into the classroom, we can learn important lessons about the environment, foster better attitudes, and ensure people do value art almost as much as a 2023 carton of eggs. That wraps up episode 120 of The Sweaty Penguin. Take two minutes, help out the show, and get a shout-out at the end of the show by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple or Podcast Addict, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. You get merch, bonus content, and more. Clips today came from PBS NewsHour. Special thanks to our Emperor Penguin patrons Lawrence Harris and Brownie Central. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guests. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions or views of Peril and Promise or the WNET Group. Thank you all for listening. I'll see you next week for our official Season 6 finale. We've got another Kahoot in store. We'll also be talking about some of our new projects around TikTok and educational resources at college campuses. All very cool stuff, so I will see you then. Music